The second answer to, is there a certain inference from the Bible to baptize believers infants? The second is, infant baptism is rooted in an invalid inference from circumcision. In Reformed Protestant circles, not in Lutheranism, not in Anglicanism, not in the Roman Catholic Church, not in Eastern Orthodoxy, etc., etc., but in our nearest theological friends, in the Reformed Paedo-Baptist, Reformed Protestants, um, this would be the, the most common or standard argument, right? That if we understood circumcision correctly, if we understood what role it played in the covenant of grace, we would all baptize our infants, all right? But we believe that is not only not allowed as a deduction, that was the first point, but even if we allow it, we believe that it's an invalid inference. Let me remind you again, not because this is Bible, but because it is accurate history, that this argument was new to the church in the year 1525. This argument was never made before then. That does not make it wrong. It does make it highly suspect. Right? And I would say that about any topic. <laughs> right? Ulrich Zwingli, uh, one of my favorite Christian heroes, um, was the one who said, hey, I see this in my Bible. Right? And ever since then, it has been perhaps the predominant um, argument for infant baptism. This again explains why, as I've told you before, in things like the Reformation Study Bible, you will see the topic of baptism handled back in Genesis 17, uh, which is where this circumcision argument, you know, is rooted. This argument goes something like this, for those of you who are not familiar with it. And let me just say, before I get into this, there are a lot of different variations of this argument. Um, multiple books could be and have been written both to defend and defeat the various forms of this argument. Uh, again, there are quite a number of varieties, and I've tried to boil it down in a fair manner. I have sincerely tried. Um, it goes something like this. God made, God makes an everlasting covenant of grace with believing Abraham. Right? He did that back in, in Genesis. Promising to make him fruitful, to make nations and kings come from him, and to be his God and his descendants' God forever. Now, Abraham and his descendants, or his seed, had to undergo circumcision. That was the sign of the covenant in order to keep the covenant. That meant that every infant male descendant had to be circumcised to be part of the covenant family or community. And that's, that's certainly true. That's plain on the surface of it. If you did not uh, 
if you were not circumcised, you, you were not part of the covenant. As a male, you were not part of the covenant family. From this story, Reformed Paedo-Baptists derive the belief that the covenant of grace is made with believers and their children, and that this is an unvarying principle for all ages. That is a prominent theme in Paedo-Baptist books on the covenant, that there is this generational principle in the covenants of the Bible. But we as Baptists deny that. We believe it was there in the Abrahamic covenant and built upon in the Mosaic and the Davidic. But we do not believe it continues after, nor do we see any evidence for it having been in covenants prior to the Abrahamic. It is not a principle in all of the covenants, all of the salvific covenants of the Bible. It simply isn't. So they reason that children in the New Testament, like in the Old, are included in the covenant with their believing parents. Finally, since baptism in the New Testament is the equivalent of circumcision in the Old, the infants of believers, of course, they're not circumcised, they're baptized. And when they are, they at least outwardly join the covenant community, the church. All right? So the idea goes something like this. Here's a, here's a syllogism. Here's a little proof. Here's a, a logical statement and deduction. It goes something like this. Major premise. The Abrahamic covenant was made with believers and their seed. Or you might say, uh, the covenant of grace was made with believers and their seed. They believe that the Abrahamic covenant is uh, the covenant of grace. Right? So that would be the first statement. The second premise, um, the Abrahamic covenant was a saving covenant, was, was the covenant of grace, right? So the Abrahamic covenants made with believers in their seed, it was the covenant of grace, and therefore the conclusion is this, the covenant of grace was made with believers and their seed. And again, there are many forms of this. It's not hard to find Presbyterians who, who don't agree with this or Reformed Congregationalists who do agree with parts of it. But this is a very representative argument, and I believe it's a fair one. Right? Now, we believe this is an invalid syllogism, that this is a wrong deduction. Not because the logic is wrong. The logic is unassailable. A, if A is true and B is true, then C is true. Yes, the logic here works. Our disagreement is with both of the premises. We do not believe that either of the premises are scriptural. We think that there's a lot of scriptural truth in them, but in the specific way that they're used and meant here, we, we do not believe that they're biblical. Let's look at the first one. The Abrahamic covenant was made with not all believers and their seed. It was made with Abraham and his seed. The Abrahamic covenant was made with Abraham and it applied to his seed or seeds. Yes, Abraham was a believer. 
and he was even the architect, archetype, the great example of the faithful. But he was not their covenant head and did not stand in their place for this covenant. This historical covenant was not made with you and me. It was made with Abraham. Further, there is no text of Scripture that says that Abraham represents us in this covenant. Our covenant head, our covenant representative, is Jesus Christ in the new covenant. So, um, this covenant is not a promise to all believers indiscriminately. It's a historical covenant made with Abraham, and the promise was for him and his seed. So, this is one of the places that if we will allow an argument, we, we disagree with this premise. We don't believe that the Abrahamic covenant um, is for all believers and their seed. Are there effects of the Abrahamic covenant that are directly tied to us? Oh, yes. Are we in the covenant? Oh, yes. <laughs> We're part of the promise. but we're not the ones it was made with. And it doesn't get transferred from one party to the next through faith. Well, secondly, the Abrahamic covenant was not the covenant of grace. It certainly was a display of the covenant of grace, regardless of your view of the covenants. I think we, would, we could all say that. It was a display of the covenant of grace, but it cannot be equated with the covenant of grace because it contains types and shadows. It was an indistinct revelation of the covenant of grace, but it is not in every sense the covenant of grace, nor the full, light-filled, final revealing of that covenant of grace. There is no forgiveness of sins in the Abrahamic covenant by itself. It only contains the promise that one day there will come a seed who will make good on that. So does salvation come through this covenant? Yes, but it doesn't come because of this covenant. So while it points to the covenant of grace, it cannot be the covenant of grace. This is also language that's too broad to be properly biblical. You'll often read or hear statements like this. Um, The covenant of grace, or the, I'm, I'm sorry, the Abrahamic covenant um, requires circumcision. So the covenant of grace requires circumcision. Or you'll hear something like this. Um, the Abrahamic covenant is, is an administration of the covenant of grace, and the generational principle is there, and and, and so that applies to us today. But again, the language is too broad. This is to flatten the covenants. This is to make the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New Covenants all pretty much the same. Not pretty much, actually, the same. <laughs> the one, it's all the one covenant of grace. And it doesn't let God define differences between these covenants should he want to. And we believe plainly from Scripture he has wanted to. The covenant of grace doesn't 
promise multiplied children like he did to Abraham, or a physical land like he did to Abraham, or kings and nations like he did to Abraham. So the new covenant, the covenant of grace and the Abrahamic covenant are not the same thing. They're not identical. The Abrahamic covenant includes the promise of redemption through faith in the coming seed, Christ, but wrapped up with lots of other earthly promises. So it's a covenant with both physical and spiritual promises. Or as Charles Hodge, the, the very well-known and really excellent uh, 19th century American Presbyterian, said, it is two covenants. It is two covenants. Some people think that that's unwise language, that it's one covenant with two aspects, but the point is the same. So the Abrahamic covenant contained promises related to the covenant of grace and promises related to a physical earthly nation. Well, here's the, here's the important question. If all of the rest of that before you, especially if it's new, is just a blur, I'm sorry, I apologize. If that's all a blur, here's the question. To which aspect of the Abrahamic covenant does circumcision belong? Did it belong to the physical earthly nation? Or did it belong to the promises of salvation in the covenant of grace? Now, we all, we all know the answer to that question, don't we? There's really not much room for argument about it. Since circumcision is now fulfilled in Christ and done away with in Christ, it must be a part of the physical earthly national covenant. So there's no justification for bringing that old covenant practice into the new covenant church. And so we say that because these two promises, uh, premises are false, the, the inference is false. It's an invalid deduction. And, and this has been argued for 400 years around and around and around. And I don't say that to discourage you from it. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong, right? Um, I'm not even claiming I'm right in this sentence. I'm just saying, you know, you can go around and around and around on it. That is not to discourage you. It's to urge you to study your Bibles, ask God for help, and trust that he will lead you into true practice. All right. Um, there are many good books from the Covenantal Credo Baptist position. There's 400 years worth of books, literally, <laughs> on this subject. Um, some of the best ones would be David Kingdon, his book, The Children of Abraham. That's really excellent. I do think it's out of print, but if you can find a copy on a used book site. It's just absolutely superb and it's short. It's short and right to the point. Um, the proper inference is that all who have received the fulfillment of circumcision, which is regeneration, they're spiritual children and so the spiritual children of Abraham. And so they should receive the outward sign of entrance into the new covenant community, which is baptism. Right. In other words, physical children of Abraham should be circumcised. 
the spiritual children of Abraham should be baptized. That's the Baptist argument contra this invalid deduction. Physical children of Abraham should have been circumcised. The spiritual children of Abraham, those who by faith grasp Jesus Christ, they should receive baptism. They should receive the new covenant sign of entrance into the covenant community. All right? Um, let me list a couple of other points about this. And again, I realize for some of you, uh, this is difficult or even or confusing or or almost pointless. I've I've met many Baptists who say, "Look, the the command and the and the examples aren't there, and so I'm done." Well, I think that's on right biblical principle. But out of love to try to understand your Pado Baptist brothers and sisters, and to try to sharpen your own mind, uh, trying to think through some of this is is important. Here just here are a couple of other points, and this is still under the second. 8.2, this is still under that. Um, here's some other, I think, mistakes that are commonly a part of this set of beliefs. Here's the first one. The, the, princi uh, the, the principle of uh, inclusive children, or, or the, the generational principle. Um, this is revoked in the New Covenant. This is revoked. Um, this idea that because an infant is born to a Christian family or a Christian mother or father, therefore they have a right to baptism. Um, um, you know, some kind of thinking like that is clearly found in the Abrahamic covenant, but, but not about faith, just about physical descent. The question is, is it continued in the new covenant? And if so, how is it? Well, Let's let the New Testament answer that because that's the Protestant way of interpretation. Here's a simple question. Who are the children of Abraham in the New Covenant? Who are they? Is it those who have been circumcised or received the supposed New Testament equivalent, infant baptism? No, it's those who, like their father Abraham, believe. Romans 4.11, Abraham, quote, is the father of all who believe. Romans 2.29, a man is a Jew, that is a child of Abraham, if he is one inwardly in the new covenant. The generational principle of blood is done away with and it's replaced with the generational principle of faith. I have sons and daughters in the faith. I have birthed a few by the grace of God. They should be baptized. Not necessarily my physical progeny. The fulfillment of this principle, which was an Old Testament principle, is come in Christ. The old is gone, the spiritual, the new is come. So the children of Abraham are determined spiritually, not through physical birth. Here's a second thing. This argument that we've just made, and you can find this over and over and over again in the Pado baptist literature, is that circumcision and baptism 
are equivalent. And the Baptist position is that circumcision and baptism are not equivalent. They are not identical. They are related because they both relate to Christ, but they are not identical. They are like each other in some ways and not like each other in other ways. And since there are differences, it's not unreasonable to think that perhaps there are different subjects under a different covenant. Baptism is not the direct fulfillment of circumcision. Christ, in his work of circumcising the heart in regeneration, is the fulfillment. Colossians 2.11 Everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ even these ceremonies. So baptism does not directly fulfill it, and it is not identical. And remember, as some of you have pointed out to me, Pastor, I think I'm getting it. They have to be identical, because if they're not identical, then maybe there's some differences. Yeah, that's right. Maybe there's some other differences. No, they must be identical, or maybe they have different parties. Right? Yeah, that's the argument. Well, thirdly, we, we need to know, re remember that, that the Old Testament church and the New Testament church are not identical. I, I didn't say they, they, um, they have nothing in common. <laughs> I didn't say that the new doesn't grow out of the old. But they are not identical. And we need to allow the Bible to define their makeup. Israel in the Old Testament was defined in a certain way. You did not have to be regenerate to be uh, a functioning Old Testament Israelite, one of the people of God. In fact, the vast majority of Israelites in the Old Testament were not converted. That's very plain from Scripture. And yet they were members in good standing in the Old Covenant Church or people of God. But the New Testament Church is defined differently. Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8. And it's, it's the fulfillment of circumcision. <laughs> That's the beauty of this, this argument. We Baptists fully embrace it. Um, it's regeneration. That's, that's what is the basis for entrance into the New Covenant community. Right? Well, Galatians 3.29 If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You're only an heir. You're only Abraham's son under the new covenant age if you belong to Christ, if you believe. In Scripture, there is what we call progressive revelation. That is, over time, God gave more light about himself and his Christ and his way of salvation. And some of the pictures or types were very shadowy, but as time went on, God gave more knowledge that explained them. We believe that's what's happened in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, the knowledge reaches its pinnacle 
in the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? John 1.17, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What's the relationship between the Old and New Covenant? Shadow and reality. Promise and fulfillment. So are there some similarities? Oh, yes. Are there some differences? Oh, yes. And one of these is the makeup of the people of God, and therefore who should be receiving the sign of being a part of the people of God. Well, let's, let's go on to the last um, few points, question three and question four. Perhaps the most quoted verse um, in credo-baptist, paedo-baptist books, arguments, etc., is Acts 2.39. So I asked the question, what about it? What does it mean? Let me, um, I'm sorry, I was not prepared. I apologize. Here's Acts 2.39. It's a wonderful promise, right? This is day of Pentecost. Peter's preaching. They're cut to the heart. They say, what, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the important verse. For the promise is for you and for your children. I've seen this verse quoted dozens if not hundreds of times in Paedo-Baptist literature. It almost always stops there. The verse doesn't stop there, however. And you cannot understand the first half of the verse if you do not read the second half of the verse. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Were all the Jews of this day called by God? No. Were all of their children called? No. What about the Gentiles? No. Some were, but not all were. This promise is for all those that God calls to himself. Now, why would he specifically mention the Jews and their children? Well, I think it's because back in Matthew 27, 25, the Jews, their representatives curse themselves and their children. You see, in not accepting the Son of God, they have broken the covenant and it is done. And they have called down the curses of the covenant upon themselves and their children. But the good news of the gospel is this, that their cursing themselves and their children is not more powerful than God's grace or his offer of salvation in the New Testament. Peter says, some of you who are standing here cursed this Jesus and murdered him 
and damned yourself and your children by your own words. But I'm here to tell you, if you will repent and be baptized into his name, you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. The promise is even for you. Oh, what tremendous grace that is. But the verse says nothing about the generational principle being continued. It simply recognizes that in this movement from the end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New, that there is hope for Jew and Gentile alike. You see, all of the parties listed are conditioned by the call of God. The promise of the Holy Spirit was not to believers and their children. The promise was to Abraham's seed, it was to the elect of God whom he will infallibly call from Jewish and Gentile peoples, all of whom would repent. So there's no infant baptism here. This is simply a gracious promise of Holy Spirit wrought salvation to everyone who repents. This is a tremendous verse but it doesn't say anything about infant baptism. There is no water here. The other verse that is very commonly used to support or to deduce infant baptism is is 1 Corinthians 7.14. He is giving instructions in this chapter about various situations in marriage. Uh, This is not directly about the church or it's about marriage. And so he talks about um, sexual immorality and, and who owns whose body in a marriage and, and uh, singleness. Uh, and then he gives advice about if you're a widow, you know, I think it'd be best because this is what I do. I, I'm single and, and can devote myself more to God. And then he says to someone who is married, but, but that doesn't mean that you should leave your husband or wife and devote yourself to God. No, you should stay married. Um, don't divorce your husband, even if he's not a believer, and vice versa. And he, So let me read, beginning at verse 12. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her children, uh, because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Who knows, you may save your husband or wife. Ah, see? The children of even one believer are holy. Therefore, they should be baptized and enter the church. That's a deduction, right? The the text doesn't actually say anything about entering the church, the covenant people of God, or baptism. There's Again, there's no water here. 
there is a deduction. The question is, what does holiness mean here? Most Baptists, and many, certainly not all, and probably not a majority, but many Paedo-Baptists recognize that in this context, what holiness means is legitimate. I'm not aware of any person who believes that if an unbeliever is married to a believer, that the believing wife makes her husband a Christian, makes him holy in the set apart to God and pure now. I, I don't, I'm not aware of anyone who believes that. It can't mean that. right? That's not how salvation happens. That's not how sanctification happens. What does it mean? He means just because a Christian's married to a non-Christian doesn't make the marriage illegitimate. And your children... Uh, in this marriage, they're not illegitimate either. The word is, is actually a very strong word here. Um, if we were to do this more bluntly or plainly, we wouldn't say, oh, our children run clean. What he's actually saying is, otherwise your children would be bastards. So, so the context here, it, this is a context of the home. This is the context of marriage. This is not about the church. This is not about some kind of covenantal or federal holiness, neither for the husband or the wife or the children. This is simply to say that despite sin, God's foundation of marriage still stands and it should still work. And Christian, don't you be the one to break up the marriage. If the unbeliever leaves, let them leave. You don't have to fight them on it. But don't you initiate that, because it's still a real marriage. It's legitimate. And so there are, there are many who, um, who understand it uh, that way um, uh, in, in many Reformed uh, kinds of teaching. All right. Well, that's, 